Welcome to the Self-Publishing School Podcast. This is the podcast to listen to if you're an aspiring writer or an author who wants to be more successful. On this show, you'll learn how to write and launch a book successfully, all from the top authors and people just like you who are doing it at the highest level. I'm your host, Chandler Volt, the founder of Self-Publishing School, the author of the book called Published, and the CEO of selfpublishing.com. For free training on how to publish a book that sells 10,000 copies, go to selfpublishing.com forward slash free training. Hey, Chandler Bolt here, and joining me today is Cal Newport. Now, Cal Newport is an assistant professor of computer science at Georgetown University. In addition to studying the theoretical foundations of our digital age, Newport also writes about the impact of these technologies on the world of work. His most recent book, Deep Work, argues that focus is the new IQ in the modern workplace and that the ability to concentrate without distraction is becoming increasingly valuable. He previously wrote So Good They Can't Ignore You, a book which debunks the long-held belief that follow your passion is good advice and three popular books of unconventional advice for students. Now, we're especially going to dive into uh, kind of the deep work methodology, because uh, if, if you've ever tried to write a book, and my guess is if you're watching this right now, uh, then you're, you, might, you might have tried to, or maybe you're part of the way through it or whatever. And if you've done that, you know that the hardest thing in that process is to, is to actually focus and to get it to the finish line. So I'm so excited to be chatting with you today, Cal. Welcome. Hey, Chandler. Thanks for having me. Well, for starters, I want to, because this isn't your first Rodeo, right? The, you know, the oh, Deep Work is, is not the first book that you've written. So I want to kind of take it back to the first book that you wrote. And let's talk about that for a little bit. What was the purpose behind that book? And what made you decide to say, hey, I'm going to start getting into this book writing thing? The first book I wrote was called How to Win at College. And I actually sold and wrote that book as an undergraduate. So I, I sold it after my junior year of college and did most of the writing during the fall of my senior year of college. Uh, you know how I got into it? It was interesting. I, I had always been writing in college and I had always toyed with the idea that it might be interesting to write a book. And I remember I was in New York City and I was having, I don't know if he remembers this, but I was having drinks with an entrepreneur named Joshua Newman at the Russian Samsovar, their homemade vodka. And I remember I was kind of talking about, uh, I'm thinking maybe one day I'll write a book. And he said, stop talking about it, right? Either do it or move on. But what's the point in just sort of delaying or holding it out? So that that sparked a fire. I said, okay, I'm going to figure out a book that I'm well-suited to write, and I'm going to figure out how this process works. Fast forward a year later, and uh, I had the deal, and I was underway. What was that process like of, of writing your first book? Was it challenging? Did you run into some dead ends? Talk us through that. Well, part of what I did was I chose a format for the book that was going to make it easier on me because I knew it was my first book. So I didn't want to dive into a 600 page deep exegesis into the, the foundations of college and being a student and pedagogy. So I purposefully pitched the book as something that was going to be in this case, short two to three page rules with counterintuitive titles, partially because I knew that would be very easy to chunk up and write. You could just write one of these rules in a one to two hour session. And I wanted to make it easy on myself because I was nervous. And my strategy was very simple. 
I woke up a little early every morning. I spent one to two hours first thing every morning. In one to two hour period, I could write one of these chapters. I needed to write 75. It paced itself out just about right over a three to four month period. So I was worried about my first book. And so I was uh, strategic about the book I pitched, knowing what my limitations might be. Got it. So you set yourself up for success by not only the format of the book, but chunking it up uh, and writing it in the way that you did. That's great. Yeah, it had to be a regular routine for me. And it was uh, the the quietest time on a college campus is the morning. So if you were willing <laughs> to wake up a little bit early, that was a time when you weren't going to, the only time you weren't going to be disturbed. Yeah, got it. Okay. So what, what was the toughest part of writing that book? And what were some lessons learned in the process of writing that book over those three months? Well, so, you know, I dived into the book. I had my list of counterintuitive rules I wanted to write. Uh, I wrote the whole manuscript. I submitted it to my editor and she turned around and said, there's no social proof in the book. You, you don't, you don't quote anyone else. You don't talk about anyone else's advice. Uh, we need that in the book. So I had to actually go back and draw from some of my interviews and do new interviews and rewrite major parts of the book to make sure that throughout I was mentioning and quoting successful students for these rules. It turned out that that is very important for this particular format. So that was on me for not really studying the format I had proposed to understand what's the best practice for this format. If I had done that, I think I would have known from the beginning. And that's something I'm better at today with my later books, understanding the format before I start the writing process. Got it. Now, did you have a did you have a particular process that you would take? I mean, obviously you chunk it up and you were getting in there every morning, but were, was there any rhyme or reason or method to the madness when you were doing the first book of, of writing every day? Uh, well, I was under a tight deadline, so that helped. I just had to get done, <laughs> and I just worked the math backwards from the deadline. And I realized uh, that's the only way it's going to work. And actually, this is you know a habit that I've developed. So I've, I've written five books now, and Something I've noticed is that uh, if you go into a book with the mindset of, let me wait till the last month before it's due, and then just go crazy and only try to work on the book in isolation, you get a much worse product. But if you actually study professional writers and people who write a lot of books and write good books, they're never going to be blogging about how the last month of writing the book almost killed them, how it almost exhausted them, because they're pros. They spread it out and they execute piece by piece. It's just part of their job. It's like you get hours into this. It's not always fun. Uh, it's sometimes hard. But these type of hours, when you crew them up over many days, over many weeks, over many months, leads to a good book. So I sort of learned from that early book that writing a book is like a job. It's not supposed to be easy all the time. And it's not something that you're supposed to just wait till three weeks before some self-imposed deadline and then just go crazy. Uh, that's just unprofessional. So, you know, whether you're self-publishing it or writing it for a publisher, I think this notion of treating the process with respect, moving past the notion that it's not about whether you're in the mood to write or if you want to write or if it's easy to write and say, no, it's my job. I don't always want to go to the office. I don't always want to sit in front of the keyboard. But if you're doing a book, that's part of your job. Got it. Now, were there any techniques that you use or maybe even that you've learned uh, over the course of five books that help you get to the good stuff, that help you kind of get in there uh, and get the words flowing? Yeah, well, you know, there's, there's the cliched advice, which is when you have a session, you just get going. 
you just get going. Now, there's a couple things I do now. So one thing is I just write all the time. I think once once you start the book writing process, there's no perfect moment. You just you begin to look for moments to write and you grab them. You're up early. I'm going to go write. Uh, you have some free time in the afternoon, the family somewhere else. I'm going to write. You carve time out of your schedule. You find time. You just want to be writing all the time. You, you almost have to think about it the way I do is it's like if you're, you're exercising, you know, the more reps you get, the more muscles you're, it's going to build up over time, the more muscles. So you kind of get this addiction to how much writing that I get in. Uh, in terms of getting the juices flowing, I usually try to break up planning something from writing something. And I do a lot of the planning of a chapter, for example, on foot. So I'll go for long walks, I'll pace, I'll go into the woods, and I'll just work it and work it and work it until I finally have an outline that makes sense for what I'm about to, about to tackle. And then when I sit down, it's just word crafting. So I try not to mix too much the crafting of what I want to say uh, at the high level with the low level craft of sentences and rhythm and paragraph structure. Got it. So when you're when you're doing that that crafting on foot, are are you normally just sorting it in your mind? Are you trying to? Are you one of those people that wants to get in front of a whiteboard and write it all out, or what's your process look like? I do it in my mind. Uh, you know, it's something I had to practice, and and it's something you can practice. You know, my in my most recent book, I call it productive meditation. But you you take a single thing you're working on, like a book chapter outline. And you walk and you try to think about it and hold it and make progress on it. And when your attention wanders, you just notice that and bring your attention back to the thing that you're trying to work on. If you do this type of training, you'll find that over a period of a, a few number of months, your ability to really hold complicated material in your head and manipulate it in your head really drastically improves, just like your mile time would improve if every day you're going for interval training. So with enough practice, you can actually get uh, quite a bit of sophisticated thinking done uh, just in your head. So now suddenly commutes and walking the dog and other things get opened up, travel, all of this gets opened up as time for you to accrue the necessary mental hours that have to add up to a well thought through book. Got it. Now, when you're are you, so you're obviously five books in, right? So are are you like even after you as you're publishing your most recent book, are are you doing that uh, productive meditation and working on the next one? Are you always thinking? Do you like to do breaks and then stints? Or like what, what does that look like for you? Uh, I tell myself I'm going to take breaks, and then I don't. <laughs> then I don't. The reality is, when by the time you get to the the marketing stage of a book, you've been working on it for so long, and you've been away from the writing for so long that it's to me kind of a relief to put mental energy towards the new idea and the next book because you're sort of done with this one and you can't craft it anymore. It's already been written and locked down. So uh, I always say I'm going to take a break. And then instead of taking a break, I write another book. <laughs> and so do, you, do you have your next few books mapped out in your head or is it more just like you can only focus on the one that, that's consuming you at the time? It's hard. I have usually only one. It's hard. You know, I wrote a, an article about this once where I actually, uh, I think it was for my last book or might've been the one before. I took a screenshot of my email inbox and I said, okay, see this email, look at the date. This was the first email where I started talking about the rough idea that became this book. And then I had another screenshot and I said, okay, see this email here. This is the publisher uh, making an offer. And then I said, look at the two dates. And it was a little over a year apart, which 
I, I emphasize to try to make the point that actually getting an idea, at least for me, to get an idea right for a book is a really long process. Uh, I'll think about something and write about something and read about something and process it and cogitate usually for about a year before it's finally worked through enough. I have the angles, I have the right sources that all of a sudden I have this very coherent idea that's ready for a book. So uh, I kind of advocate for the notion that you have to accrue quite a bit of cognitive hours on an idea often before it's really worked through and ready to be transformed into a book. Got it. Now, over the course of doing your five books, how has your writing process changed and evolved? And, and what are things like maybe things that you've picked up along the way or just how has it changed? Yeah, well, you know, I think I'm, I more easily embrace the notion that writing is craft. And like any other craftsman, you, you, you eventually get used to the idea that it's not always comfortable, right? I mean, any craft, it's hard. You have to concentrate and it strains your mind. But over time, if you can learn to get uh, satisfaction out of that strain, it's not so bad, right? You go in and say, yeah, it's hard. Writing is hard, just like carving stone is hard or uh, working on a, a hard thing that you're, you're carving out of wood and it's very difficult. You have to really concentrate to get it right. You know, it, it's hard to do and you're not always excited to do it. It takes a lot of concentration to be frustrating, but there's a satisfaction in the difficulty. There's a satisfaction in pushing up against the entropy of the world and, and actually finding some order that has some value. So I think my appreciation of writing as a craft, uh, as something that I can't completely systematize away until it's just painless and it's just, uh, cranking widgets and I don't even have to think about it and books come out the other end, thinking about it as craft, but noting that there's real satisfaction in craft that's changed my relationship to writing. So I'm able to put a lot of time into books. Uh, I'm able to sort of suffer for books in a way that's not so suffering as it might've been before. Got it. And how, how would you say that, that you as a craftsman have improved over like, are there particular things from book to book that you, that you change your method method? Has your method stayed the same throughout? What's that evolution look like? Well, I've been on a, a very well plotted trajectory to keep improving my actual tools as a writer. So, you know, my very first book was uh, three page rules. So very simple format. Uh, so the next book I tackled, they said, okay, now I want to do sort of standard, you know, 20, 30 page chapters, a, a standard length book where you have to actually, the chapters have to lay out an idea and give examples. And that was, that was more complicated. Uh, and then I said, okay, those were student advice books. I want to start transitioning towards more sophisticated idea book type thinking. I actually went for a, a multi-year period where, first of all, I started to study the writing of people I respected, to break down their articles, to break down their chapters, to understand their techniques. And I started taking on article commissions that would force me or give me opportunity to practice and hone these techniques. So I spent one to two years doing that. And then I turned around and my, my pivot book was, uh, it was aimed at students, but I wrote it like a Malcolm Gladwell book. So it was a, a book that allowed me, it was thick, it had a lot of original ideas, it drew from a lot of sources. I kind of did that under the radar. And then after I was done with that is what allowed me to make my first jump into sort of hardcover, you know, front of the bookstore, major publisher idea type books. That was my, my, my springboard into, you know, those type of books. So, you know, along the way, every book has been planned to push my skills and to, to hone my skills in very specific ways. So the next book can be closer to where I want to get. And the next book can be even closer than that. What was the hardest book that you've written so far? 
Oh, that's an interesting question. I, my third book was hard because the, this was the book where I, I, I took a student book and I wrote it like a Malcolm Gladwell book and I got away with it because the, the publisher, so I was at Random House at the time and they went through uh, really sharp contractions, like the whole publishing industry. And so a lot of editors were getting fired. So my editor got fired and went to another editor. She got fired, got to another editor. They got fired, got to another editor. I think I went through five editors. So by the time I got to the last editor, no one knew what I was doing, right? Like it was long ago, like everyone who had acquired the book or knew, so I could just do what I wanted, right? Because they were just like, I don't know. I came in as late in the process. I don't even know what we, what, what we bought from you. Like, just give us a manuscript. So I had complete carte blanche. And, and so I, I went a little crazy. It's, it's a uh, kind of a crazy book. It's very interesting. It has this very innocuous title. It's called uh, How to Be a High School Superstar. And you're like, okay, this is going to be like tips for how to be a high school superstar. The whole thing is a, it's about college admissions. It's a meditation on impressiveness and sort of at the neurological level, like what makes someone <laughs> impressive and how to craft the life from scratch that naturally will attract these impressive things. And oh, by the way, if you're crafting this really like philosophically interesting life, you'll have an easy time getting to college. <laughs> it's a crazy book, you know, and I was just like making up theories and philosophies and I was going around and interviewing these students. And, but anyways, that was really hard because it was, uh, I had no constraints and, and so I was using it to train. So that was hard to write because uh, it was all terra incognito. I mean, it was all blue water where I was just inventing theories and frameworks from scratch, but it was a lot of fun that not a lot of people know about it, but the people who, who do know about it, there's this little cult following. It's like, what is this book? This is the weirdest thing. <laughs> oh, that's great. Now for those of us uh, who, who for, for those who are listening, who haven't read your newest book yet, deep work, uh, ex explain to us some of the principles uh, in that book and, and, and sort of how that relates to writing and especially how that relates to, to writing your first book. Right. Well, the premise of deep work is that the ability to focus without distraction very intensely on something for a long period of time without any distraction, without any switching of context is almost like a superpower in the knowledge economy that if you train this ability, you train your ability to focus very intensely and you build your day as much as possible around these really long, uninterrupted focus sections, uh, it produces massively more results and results of massively higher quality for the time you actually spend working. So I argue that this ability to do deep work is a tier one skill in our current economy. In fact, The Economist magazine gave, used the phrase that deep work is like the killer app of the knowledge economy, which I think is a good way of putting it. And my argument in the book is this skill is actually becoming more valuable. As we enter an age of increasing automation and outsourcing, as the knowledge economy gets more competitive, it's more and more valuable if you're able to concentrate intensely, because that's the only way to produce things of real value, to push your skills to get better, to produce things of hard to replicate value. At the same time that deep work is becoming increasingly valuable, it's also becoming increasingly rare. People are getting worse at it. They, uh, people are losing their ability to focus intensely because most of their day is so fragmented. And their day itself, their schedule, just doesn't have time for long periods of, of actual focused uh, distraction. So my argument is that it's a great opportunity, that if you're one of the few people who actually cultivates the ability to work deeply, 
you are going to have a massive competitive advantage uh, in our knowledge economy. Well, this is, of course, especially true if you're interested in writing, because writing is entirely a function of deep work. The, the harder you can concentrate, the more intense you're able to focus, the better writing you can produce, and the less time it requires. So if you're interested, for example, in writing your first book, and you need to fit this into a schedule that already has other things in it, like a job or a family, one of the best things you can do is cultivate your ability to concentrate very intensely, which is not easy to do. But if you cultivate this skill, and I know this from experience, you're going to be able to produce more writing in less time. In that hour you have in the morning, you're going to produce much more pages than someone who hasn't cultivated the skill. In the three hours you have on the plane, you're going to produce a chapter where the average person might just get a little bit of bad pose. So I think for a writer in particular, training your ability to work deeply is probably one of the most important things you can do to uh, maximize the chances that you succeed. Hey, Chandler Bolt here. I hope you're loving this episode so far. It's time to go from inspiration to implementation. All right, so if you've learned something, we want to help you implement what you've learned with your book. So what I want you to do right now is go to selfpublishing.com forward slash schedule, book a publishing consultation with one of the experts on my team. We'll talk about your goals for your book, your dreams, your challenges, your next steps, and we'll start putting together a plan. All right, so go to selfpublishing.com forward slash schedule, book a call with the team. Let's see how we can help with your book. It's time to implement. And how do you recommend that people train and cultivate that skill? Well, there's two types of training that's relevant. There's active and passive training. So active training is what you might expect, which is uh, actually doing exercises to take your current ability to focus and to try to increase the intensity of focus. So, uh, you know, doing a Pomodoro with something difficult, for example, I, I 20 minutes concentrating as hard as I can on my writing. Once I'm comfortable with 20 minutes, I go to 30 minutes, then I go to 40 minutes. That's fine. Uh, anything that requires uh, intellectual focus and gives you a lot of feedback if you lose your concentration, that's good training. So if you're playing bridge or trying to learn a musical instrument, anything that requires intense concentration and you get immediate ding feedback if you lose your concentration, that can help train your ability to focus. The productive meditation we talked about, that also can help train your ability. And again, I want to emphasize it's very trainable. If you haven't been practicing your concentration, you're not going to be good at it. Just like if you've been on the couch for the past few years, you're not going to be very good when you go for a long run. Less obvious to people is the passive training. And what this, what this comes down to is that if your mind has built up an addiction to novel stimuli at the slightest hint of boredom, it is going to have a very hard time concentrating deeply when it comes time to work. So in other words, if in the evening, at the slightest hint of boredom, the phone comes out. If as soon as you're in the line, Facebook, Twitter, let me go through my cycle of websites. If while you're watching a show and there's like a commercial or downtime, you pull out the tablet and you're surfing at the same time, that type of behavior is building up an addiction to novel stimuli. Once your mind has this addiction, when you get to the next morning and you say, I'm going to lock in and I'm going to write, it's not going to be able to tolerate it. It's going to need stimuli. You're not, it's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to feel... Uh, stressful and strained. You're not going to be able to get much concentration. So, you know, I have a chapter in my book called Embrace Boredom. And I think if you're serious about using your brain to produce things that are valuable and new in the world, you have to embrace boredom. You're going to have to detox your mind from this constant bath of novel stimuli. You're just going to have to have 
many more times in your day and your evening and during the day where just, I don't have stimuli, maybe I'm a little bored, and that's okay. Because that just lays the foundation, the mental foundation on which you can build an actual ability to concentrate. Got it. So you're saying that our time outside of writing is, is just as valuable, if not more valuable, than than the time that we are writing because of the patterns that are building up in our mind and because of kind of the, the, the habits, the knee-jerk reactions and things that are happening here. Yeah, and I, I think the right analogy is athletics because writing is an incredibly intense cognitive activity. It really pushes your brain to the limit. You're really trying to get a lot out of your brain. Uh, so you have to treat your brain with respect just in the same way that if you were trying to do a physically demanding thing. So let's say you were a professional athlete or you were running uh, you were running 5Ks on a regular basis. You couldn't eat a lot of junk food outside of your training. It's not enough to say, hey, when I'm actually on the run, I'm not smoking or eating chips, so I'm fine. I just, I just smoke and eat chips at night, but that's not when I'm training. It should be fine. Say, no, you gotta, your fitness has got to be high if you're going to push your body to the extreme at your races. Writing is like being a marathon runner, but for your mind, right? If you're going to write on a regular basis, you can't be having cognitive junk food. You can't be doing the mental equivalent of smoking cigarettes. Uh, you know, I know it's, it's comforting to, to have the phone. I know it's comforting to, to, to be plugged into these stimuli and these algorithmically honed headlines that are so interesting and compelling. You have to click on them. But if you're serious about writing, you're going to have to get away from a lot of that. Um, and, you know, this is this it's somewhat controversial. Uh, but look, I take my mind seriously. I write and I'm a, a theoretical computer scientist. All I do is use my mind to create things that are valuable. And I don't like to work at night and I don't like to work on weekends. So, you know, I got to get a lot of concentration when it comes time to work. I have to make a lot of sacrifices to do that. So I've never had a social media account, for example. I've never had a Facebook account. I've never had a Twitter account. I don't web surf. I, for the most part, don't use the, inter uh, the internet for entertainment. I, I don't use my phone that much. I'm not on the computer that much at night. It turns out it's okay. You can still have friends. You can still know what's going on in the world. You're alive. It, it, it all works out. But, you know, I do it not because I think I'm above those things. It's because I want to trust myself. I, I need to get a lot of value out of my brain. And those things are really well engineered to, to distract your brain. Just like I don't bring Oreos into the house. Because it's not that I think Oreos are, you know, I'm too good for Oreos. It's because I can't eat two. I'm going to eat the whole package. Those things are just engineered to, to taste perfect. So I argue if you want to be serious about writing, you got to get as serious about your brain as you would be about your physical fitness if you wanted to get serious about doing athletic endeavors. That's great. Now talk to us a little bit about the four rules that you talk about in the book. Right. So I'll give you the high-level summary. Uh, the first rule is work deeply, and that's about – putting the routines and rituals into your day that make sure that you regularly put aside time for deeply cognitive uh, demanding activities and that you set up those periods with the types of rituals that are going to help you get the most out of them. Uh, the second rule was embrace boredom, and that's what we were just talking about. This is about uh, weaning your mind from a addiction to novel stimuli so that it's actually able to get better at concentrating. The third rule, which kind of goes hand in hand, is called quit social media. And the idea of this rule is that if you're going to be a craftsman, you have to be very selective about the tools you let into your life. 
it's not enough that a tool has some benefit or there might be something you might miss out if you don't use it. That can't be the criteria for you allowing a tool to gain access to your time and attention. So you have to become much more selective and only the tools that have massive positive benefits should get any claim to your time and attention, which is probably bad news for Snapchat. The fourth rule is called drain the shallows, and it's about how do you take the, the non-deep things in your life, the type of sort of logistical or other type of work you just need to do to keep going and keep organized and because of your job, and how do you uh, minimize that where possible and handle what's left very efficiently so that it doesn't take over all of your time and leave no time left for sort of the deeper cognitive thinking. Now, which of the rules would you say is the toughest for most people to adopt? Well, here's what I've been hearing from readers. They think quit social media is going to be the toughest. But what they discover is after they stop using some of these tools for a few days, they realize, I don't miss this at all. Like, this doesn't matter. I, I'm not looking at my Facebook feed. Who cares, right? They think it's going to be hard. It's not hard at all. And they realize how tenuous the grasp was of these tools. The thing that people have the most problems with is the embrace boredom. Because that, uh, that addiction is very strong. Addictions are hard. And so this notion of getting comfortable with you come home and you put your phone away. Uh, you know, like what I recommend in the book, for example, is you don't schedule time to concentrate. Like you don't schedule the occasional internet Sabbath. You flip it and you schedule the time that you're going to be on the internet. So when you come home from work, you say from eight to nine, I'm going to go on my tablet and go nuts. And, and you know, I'm going to get the, I'm going to read the, uh, the sports articles is what I like to do, or I'm going to go on social media or whatever people do. I have that hour. I'm going to do it all the other hours. The default is I'm not online. Same thing at work. Like here's the next time I'm going to go online and check email all the other time you're not doing it. So, you know, I actually recommend you flip it. It's really hard for people. It's, it's really hard at first. Uh, but I, you know, I have a whole chapter early in the book about why a life that's deeper, that has less stimuli, less things you do, but the things you do, you do with much more concentration and with much more commitment, why this could be a much more satisfying and meaningful way to go through life. There's evidence from lots of different fields of science that when you, when you build a deeper life, a life that's built on concentrating hard on a small number of things that you want to be really valuable, a book that you think is going to be really important and you really are concentrating on writing that book, a business you're trying to grow and the key things in that business are getting all of your attention. This is a much more satisfying, less anxious, more meaningful life than one that's just full of jumping from stimuli to stimuli from this to this and that. Uh, a lot of people don't realize how anxious they are until they actually step away from that whirlwind and actually try out a slower but deeper lifestyle for a while. Hmm. What would you say to, to someone who says, Cal, you're, you're really challenging me here, man. These, these four rules sound pretty intense and, and I don't know if I can adopt them all at once. What would you say is like the, 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 the first one that's like, try this one first if you're looking for a quick win and, and then I think you'll be sold to adopt the other ones. Yeah, so my, my primer for people who are just trying to ease into this is uh, you, you, you just do three things. So the first thing is take the next two weeks and for each of those next two weeks coming up, block out four hours on your calendar, four hours in the first week, four hours in the second week. And you can split this over two sessions if you want. So two blocks of two hours the first week, two blocks of two hours the second week. 
treat that time like a doctor's appointment. So when other things come up, you say, oh, I can't do it then. I have a thing from one to three, but I could do it after before. Well, you protect the time. It's like you had to go to the doctor's appointment. Use that for focusing intensely on just one thing, all four of those hours in, uh, in both of those weeks. So just so you get a taste of what's it like to keep coming back to something and giving it a lot of time. But treat those periods you put aside, those trial periods, you have to treat them with respect. So the rule has to be zero distraction. So not even a glance at an inbox not even a glance at a phone. It has to be the two hours with no stimuli except, and if you look at a, an inbox or a phone, all right, that session doesn't count. We'll have to schedule another one. That's to give you a taste of, of what it feels like to really just be with something. You're gonna get bored and then excited then bored again and then hit a flow state. It's a really interesting experience. So that, that's the first bit of my primer. Uh, the, the second bit of my primer is get some sort of activity that you're gonna try for the next two weeks that helps you train your brain. So, so something you take on, it could be uh, reading a hard book and like writing up a summary of it, or it could be doing an online course, but take something that you're doing voluntarily that, that actually pushes your brain, requires you to concentrate. Um, and then the third thing I'd recommend is try to take one step that proves to yourself that you take your ability to concentrate and focus more seriously. So maybe take a social media tool and say, I'm going on a hiatus. Or maybe say, I'm going to have a phone hour uh, every night after work and no phone outside of that hour. Just something you do that psychologically indicates to yourself, just like when you join a gym to indicate that now I'm serious about getting in shape, that indicates to your brain, I'm pretty serious about my time and attention. Those three things, do it over a two-week period. That's the primer. That's sort of the, the you get a little bit of a taste of, uh, of the deep life and you get your mind kind of ready for this idea of diving in deeper. Love it. So uh, if you're listening, if you're watching right now, take the challenge. You've got two weeks. Do it. It's worth it. <laughs> All right. Now, what would you say to the, to the overly busy uh, and overly distracted person who is just, they, they, they're thinking, man, I, I want to do this book. I, I want like, I, this is something that is important to me, but I just can't see, seem to find the time. Uh, and, and I'm just always distracted, always have things going on. What would be your advice to them? Well, it's important to remember that the marketplace is ruthless. And the only thing that the marketplace values are things that are rare and valuable. There's no value in the marketplace for busyness. There's really no value in the marketplace for things that don't require you to take your skills and apply them at a high level. So you should be very suspicious of any time you're spending that's doing sort of easily replicatable things. So for example, no one's ever made a fortune being really good at Facebook, but there are people who have made huge fortunes being good at the incredibly cognitive demanding computer skills required to build out those big distributed systems that run Facebook. No one's ever made a fortune tweeting, you know, interesting quotes about things, but people have made very good living doing the hard cognitive challenging work of writing the, the, the thought provoking books that everyone's then going around and tweeting and doing quotes about. So busyness has no value in the marketplace. And if you're not doing activities that are valued in the marketplace, you're not going to get rewarded for it. You're not going to get options. You're not going to get autonomy in your life. You're not going to get margin to do other things. So your focus should be how much of my time can I spend 
pushing my brain to its limit to produce things that are as valuable as I'm able to produce because that's what the market will, uh, that's what the market will reward. So when I say, Hey, how are you doing to someone? And they say, ah, busy. My first reaction is, Oh, I'm so sorry. Uh, hopefully you have a plan to take care of that problem. Busyness. There's no value to it. There's no value to business. So if you can write a book that you're well suited to write, and it's a piece of craftsmanship that you really worked on that has value that can actually produce value in your life and give you autonomy. If you answer a lot of emails and are on Facebook a lot, wasted time. There's no value in that. The marketplace doesn't value those things because anyone can do it. Hmm. So, so I, it seems like the, the crux of this problem is that most people see busyness as a good thing, but you're arguing that it's a bad thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel, you know, uh, sympathetic when people, say, oh, I'm just so busy. Well, that's too bad. It's like someone saying, yeah, I have the flu. You're like, ah, oh, that, you know, that's terrible. It sucks. I'm sorry. Like I, I'm, I'm cheering on your quick recovery so you can get back to, to actually living life. That's my, that's my thought on busyness. And that's why I think it's important to use terms like deep work and to separate it from other types of work, which I call shallow work, because you recognize that though shallow work is necessary, maybe it's what prevents you from getting fired. It's deep work. That's what gets you promoted. It's deep work that makes a difference in the world. It's deep work that's really satisfying. It's deep work that generates a lot of rewards. So the balance I see is uh, non-deep work is a necessary evil. You, you, you try to minimize as much as you can and be very efficient and productive about what remains. But your, your, your real satisfaction and pride should come from deep work and more should be better. Do you think it's possible to, to become busy on, on working on deep work? Well, the thing with deep work is you can only do so much of it in a day. So if you study, as I did, for example, professional fiction writers, so people who all they do is write books for a living, uh, and you study their schedules, they basically get maybe like a morning's worth of writing. And that's about as much as their brain can handle. So you can only be so busy on deep work. That's what's kind of nice about it. You, you, in four hours, you can produce a mass amount of value, and then your brain needs a breather. Just like a, you know, a professional athlete, you can't, you can't be in the weight room for eight hours. You're, you're going to wear out your muscles. You're going to get injured. You need to get in there for a few hours and do it really intensely. So uh, deep work has a natural governor on it. You can only do so much effectively, unlike shallow work, which you can fill all your waking hours with. Got it. Now, what will be your parting tip, your parting piece of wisdom for someone who's thinking about writing a book, but thinking about adopting this this deep work philosophy to get it done, but they're just struggling and, and, and maybe they're just kind of on the fence and they're not quite there yet. Yeah. Well, I think it's helpful to think that your the goal is not for the work to seem easy. The goal is to learn to appreciate and find satisfaction in doing deep work. So when you get that mindset, uh, that mindset shift, it's easier to persist through the lots of work, a lot of it which is not that pleasant, involved to actually produce a cognitive artifact that's valuable. So to me, getting the mindset right is the foundation for a lot to follow. So you change the mindset towards if I get the away from, if I get just the right system, the writing is going to be easy. I'm just going to do these things. I'm not even going to think about it. And then I'll have a book one day when I look up and instead say, you know what? I've built this ritual around my writing sessions. I do it at the same time. I do it with zero distraction. I have the right coffee. I go for a walk and it's become a very satisfying, meaningful part of my schedule. That's really the key. Once you learn to actually appreciate deep work and find it satisfying, you begin to crave it. And once you begin to crave it, 
then issues of procrastination and writer's block, a lot of this just goes away. You, you actually start to get a little bit uncomfortable if it's been a few days since you've really had a deep work block. So change the mindset and a lot of other issues that face first time authors start to go away. That's great. And you start to change the mindset by first taking on that challenge that you talked uh, about, right? Which was the two week challenge. And repeat it one last time to make sure that this really sticks with people. All right. Two weeks, four hours per week put aside for true distraction free work, not even a glance at a phone, not even a glance at an inbox, all on the same cognitive task. Take on at least one activity in that period that is voluntary but pushes your ability to concentrate, requires you to focus really hard, and make one change in your life that shows yourself that you prioritize the sanctity of your time and attention. Do those three things over a two-week period, and you're going to feel completely differently about the potential of deep work. Love it. Now, you've got two weeks starting today. Challenge accepted. Here we go. Cal, thank you so much for coming on and chatting with us today. Where can people go to find out more about you, your books, and what you're up to? Well, I have a website, calnewport.com. You can find out about my books. I also blog about these topics. Beyond that, I'm not really that easy to reach by design. <laughs> I'm not on social media. I don't have a public email address. So, uh, you know, I, I appreciate your support. It's just hard to tell me about it. <laughs> in true fashion you're practicing what you preach what you were talking about earlier and what you talk about in your books uh, you're practicing that thanks again cal it was great to have you great thanks chandler thank you so much for watching or listening to this episode of the self-publishing school podcast i know there's so many places that you can be spending your time there's other podcasts that you could be listening to youtube channels that you'd be watching uh, so thank you so much it means the world now i want you to do three things right now if you found this episode all right number one i don't know if you know this but we've got a youtube channel it's a companion channel to this podcast all the video versions of the episode are on the youtube channel so number one subscribe to the youtube channel Number two, if you're listening to this podcast wherever, whether this is Spotify, Apple Podcasts, number two, I want you to subscribe to this podcast right now so you don't miss a future episode. Uh, and then number three, this is probably the most important, uh, leave a review on the podcast. All right. Reviews are super important and help the podcast get discovered by other people. Uh, so number three, leave a review on the podcast. Thank you so much. I'll see you in the next episode. If you're on the fence about scheduling a publishing consultation call with my team, maybe you're not quite ready uh, for that, I've got some free training that I think will be really helpful for you. All right, all you have to do is go to register to sign up. Go to selfpublishing.com forward slash free training. When you do, you're also going to get a free digital copy of my new book, Published. And on that training, you're going to learn the next step, so how to implement with your book. So how to write, how to publish, how to launch successfully. So go to register right now at selfpublishing.com forward slash free training. I'll see you there.